So again, good morning to y'all, and I didn't introduce myself a minute ago, but I'm Ed Griffin-Hagen, one of the pastors here at my church, and I'm really very excited this morning. We're starting a new series, and it's called Knowing and Growing. Um, it's a, a, a series on a pretty short book in the New Testament, Second Peter. Um, Second Peter's the 22nd book in the New Testament, right between First Peter and First John, and Peter's overarching principle, his overarching purpose in this letter, in this epistle, is to call Christians, to call me and you, to spiritual growth. Not just spiritual growth for the sake of spiritual growth, but spiritual growth in this case to, uh, so that we can fight false teaching, so that we can fight heresy that is, is, is at the time when Peter wrote this in about 67 or 68, to fight false teaching that was going on then. Y'all think there's false teaching going on today in the world we live in? Holy mackerel, of course there is. And so this letter is an encouragement to us and a call to growth while we wait for Jesus to come back. Y'all know he's coming back, right? So while we wait for him to come back, part of our role as a believer is to fight the heresy, to fight the, the false teaching that the world bombards all of us with. And so that's a big, <clears throat> big part of the reason that Peter wrote this book, and his, his first letter, and he probably wrote many letters, two of, the le of his letters found their way into the canon of Scripture, so his first letter, 1 Peter, was all about God's grace, all about God's grace, but the second letter, um, his emphasis is on the knowledge of God, on the knowledge of God, and he uses that word 13 times, there's only three chapters in the book, and he uses that word 13 times and so when we circle words in the scripture, we've done that before. Um, when, when there's a, when he, uh, an author uses a, the word a lot, it's a pretty important principle in the book. And so knowledge used a lot in this book, but he's not talking about, uh, he's not really talking about head knowledge. He's not talking necessarily about, <clears throat> about some intellectual understanding of some truth. He's talking about a knowledge that comes from an intimate involvement in someone's life, an intimate involvement um, in the sense that, that Jesus used it in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life that they know you. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. It's, 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 a, it's a deep internal sharing of nature knowing it's not just some head knowledge i have a friend of mine whose grandma had uh, was going losing her memory and i can empathize with it because both my parents have alzheimer's and 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 i can empathize with it and if any of you have ever watched that kind of happen it's nasty and it's bad and so his grandma was losing her memory and her details at the beginning, they kind of blur. It's like looking through a, a, a glass that's slowly dimming. But throughout her life, this buddy of mine's grandma, throughout her life, she had such a passion for this book, such a passion for the Word of God. She memorized Scripture, like, all the time, tons of verses. And her favorite verse was 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And I want to read that verse to you. She loved the King James Version, so I'm going to read it to you in the King James translation. 
For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. She finally ended up confined uh, to a bed in a nursing home. My friend's grandma. And my buddy and his family, they knew that more than likely, barring some miracle from God, that she wasn't coming out of that nursing home alive. And when they'd visit, she'd still quote scripture passages. And, and most of the time, it was Second Timothy 1.12. And as time went on, time moved on, um, and her mind dimmed a little more each day, parts of her favorite verse began to kind of slip away. She'd say, I, I know whom I have believed. He is able to keep what I have committed to him. You know, she's struggling and she's finding little bits and pieces of it. And he said as, her, uh, as she grew weaker, the verse got even shorter and shorter. And she got to what I have committed to him. And as she was dying, her voice became so faint that their family would have to lean over and they'd lean in and they'd listen to just the few whispered words that were on her lips. And at the very end, there was only one word of her life verse that was left, and it's him. And she whispered it like over and over and over, just him, him, him. That's the knowledge that Peter is talking about. That's not head knowledge. That's him living inside of her. That, that word, it was all that was left. And the reason, <clears throat> the reason that it is all that's left is because he is all that we need. We think we need all kind of junk. But she boiled it all down. She virtually boiled down the, whole, the entirety of Scripture to one word, and that is Jesus. That is the way that happened. So today we're going to look at Second Peter. We're going to look at the first chapter of Second Peter. And he opens up this, this book, this letter, with a description of the Christian life, authentic Christianity. In chapter 2, uh, Peter describes false teachers and false teaching. But before he describes the counterfeits in chapter 2, which we're going to look at next week, he, <clears throat> he, he describes what authentic, true, real, genuine Christianity looks like, what a real believer looks like. And I think the best way to snoop out a lie is to know what the truth looks like. Does that make sense? If I want to know what's counterfeit, I need to know what is true. And so Peter gives us three affirmations about, about, <clears throat> about the true Christian life in the first 11 or so verses of the first chapter. And so number one is this, the Christian life begins with faith. It begins with faith. And Peter was writing to the folks that probably writing to the folks that he wrote First Peter to, which was a mixed bag of Jewish and Gentile churches in Pontus, in Galatia, in Bithynia, in um, Cappadocia, and in Asia. And, and in this first verse or so, he calls this faith precious. He calls this faith precious. Flip to, to the slide. There you go. Verse 1 says that their faith is as precious as ours. You know, as we walk through Scripture, I want to help us learn kind of how to read the Bible and looking at pronouns and this and that. Anyway, if we look at this verse, he says their faith is as precious as ours. So who is the ours that Peter is talking about? 
The ours that he's talking about is the apostles' faith. And he says uh, that these believers' faith, your faith, my faith, is as precious as the apostles' faith. It's as precious, that's another word Peter loves, the word precious too. It's as precious as Peter's and James and John's and, and all the guys. Their faith is no more special, no more precious than yours and mine. And Peter's kind of putting an exclamation mark on that. So the Christian life begins with faith, and he gives us three things, three aspects maybe, uh, about this faith. And number one is that this faith, our faith, it's about, it's in a person. The faith is in a person. Look at verses 1 and 2. I want to read those. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of uh, Jesus our Lord. From the very beginning of this letter, Peter is emphasizing Christ's deity, Christ's godness. Jesus is God, Peter says. Even the way that the, that the words are arranged, God and in Greek, God and Savior are not two different people. God and Savior describe one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Our faith, it's not just some faith for the sake of faith. That's a lie from hell. Don't let somebody say, well, he's a man of faith. Like, it's faith in what? It's not just faith is not the virtue. The object of the faith is the point. And Peter is... It's almost like a text message in all caps. Peter is screaming at us that the object of our faith is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Y'all get that? Faith is not the virtue. The object of the faith is. And Jesus, in this passage, Peter talks about three, uh, three commodities, three spiritual commodities that can only come from him. And those are righteousness, grace, and peace. When you and I trust Him, when we trust in Him, when we place saving faith in Him, we are given His righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's His righteousness. He gives it to us. His becomes ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said this, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might what become the righteousness of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to earn it. It is a gift from Him. And secondly, grace. That's righteousness. Secondly is grace. And grace makes no sense. At least to me, grace makes no sense. It is God's favor to the undeserving. We get exactly what we don't deserve. The world is completely 180 degrees the other way. The world is going to scream at you that you always get what you deserve. Grace defies completely that he is the God of all grace and he channels it to us through his son. John 1.16 says, for from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. And so how does the righteousness that he gives us, the grace that he provides for us, how does that play out? What is the result of that? Peter says the result is the third commodity and that's peace. Paul tells us in Philippians 4.7 that that peace surpasses all understanding. 
If you've ever felt that peace, that kind of peace, in the midst of the worst consequences, the worst um, circumstances of your life, yet you felt peace, that's the peace that Peter's talking about. And it does, it completely surpasses understanding because it doesn't make any sense. You should be freaking out. And you're not freaking out because Jesus has given you his righteousness. He's given you his grace. And those two produce peace in a believer's life. And the way, the way that that grace and that peace plays itself out, the way that it is ours, maybe better said, is through what Peter calls the knowledge in verses 1 and 2. It is the deep, intimate, participatory knowledge. It's not an intellectual thing. It is a heart thing. I can know something in my head, and there's not that much distance between here and here. I can keep it in my head. It never makes its way to my heart. That is not what Peter is talking about. He's talking about heart knowledge. And so the second thing now about this faith is that this faith involves God's power. In verse 3, this faith involves God's power. Verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything. It doesn't say it's given us a few things. It says He's given His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. This life begins with faith in Jesus Christ. But when you know Him deeply and when you know Him personally, His power enables us to live a godly life. Not my power. Left to my own power, I'm going to jack it up in seconds. But His power, the text says, provides everything that we need to live a godly life. And understand, we are all sinners. Some lost and some found, but we're all sinners. There's not, y'all, there's not black and white and blue and green and European and American and Spanish and this and that. There's not, that, all of that's a bunch of junk. There's only two kinds of people on the planet, lost sinners and saved sinners. That's it. That's why racism is so stupid. There are only lost sinners and saved sinners. And the scripture says that the lost sinner, the unsaved sinner is dead. Dead. Not alive. Dead. Peter tells us that when you are reborn, when you, when you are born into the family of God, you are made complete. And verse 3 says that he gives you everything you need to live a godly life. We'll hear next week that the false teachers that are addressed in chapter 2, they claim to have some special knowledge, some special doctrine that's going to add something to your life. And Peter says, no, no, they don't. Jesus has given us everything that we need. We have everything that we need in Christ. What did my friend's grandmama say? Him. She just said him. All she needed was him. And so then the, the, the last thing that he says about this faith is in verse 4. He says this faith involves God's promises. It involves God's promises. Through these, he has given us <clears throat> his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So through these, what these? 
the these he's talking about is is the is is Jesus' glory and his goodness. Through his glory and his goodness, he's given us these great and precious promises. What are the promises? The promises is the word of God. That is what he's talking about. It's it's here for us. You gotta love the the text. You gotta love the scripture. And through that, Peter says, we get to share in his nature. It's like the way that a the way that a baby shares the nature of the parents. A person who is born of God shares in God's nature. The lost sinner, again, is dead. But the saved sinner is alive in Christ and can escape all of that corruption and that decay. Romans 8.21 says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Y'all, if we can get our arms around... And I, I've struggled with this, this idea. I know it in my head. I struggle with it, though. If we can get our arms around the idea, the fact that we are a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's what? He is a new creation. So if we can really grasp, if we can really get our arms around the idea that, that we have a new nature, that we are dead in our trespasses before, we are born again, and He gives us part of Himself. He gives us a new nature. And if we can get our arms around that idea and understand that we feed that new nature with what Peter calls these precious promises. We feed our new nature with the Scripture. Every day, we feed ourselves by getting in and staying in the Word of God. If we can do that, we're going to have very little interest in the garbage that the world is throwing at us. And we will end up living a fruit-bearing life as a child of God. Godly living is really is the result of cultivating and tilling the soil of the new nature that God gives us. So the number one affirmation about the true Christian life is that it begins with faith. And number two in verses 5 through 7 is that, that faith, true, Jesus-centered faith, results in spiritual growth. And you know what? True Jesus-centered faith 100% of the time results in spiritual growth. Always. Always. It can't not result in spiritual growth. I want to walk through that in a second. Y'all look at the, these, these uh, three verses, 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. We're going to walk through those. Dead things, y'all do understand, dead things don't grow. They don't grow. But where there is life, there must also be growth. If there's life, there will be growth. If there's death, there won't be growth. If we're alive in Christ there'll be growth. And sometimes it's little growth. Sometimes it's like you almost can't see it, the kind of growth. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's fast. Sometimes it's massive amounts of growth. But, but the reality is there will be some growth. And, and new birth, being reborn, being saved. Uh, Paul uses the term justification. We're justified. 
we're picked and plucked out of the pit of hell and God saves us. All of that is not the end. You gotta, that's not the end. It's the beginning. It's day zero when that happens. So it is, the, it is the beginning. And you know what? The spiritual growth doesn't just automatically happen. It doesn't just magically happen. There is like a partnership that takes place between a believer and God, and God walks along and beside that, that believer to help them grow. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 say, Work out your salvation. With Philippians is such an encouraging uh, letter that Paul wrote. And, and chapter, uh, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2, it's work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. He comes alongside of us. He, he helps us apply spiritual disciplines and spiritual diligence. And often he does that by bringing folks into our life. And he always does it by, he always involves the word of God, somehow or the other. And so in these three verses, Peter lists seven characteristics of a godly life. And the word that's translated uh, add really means to supply generously or to, to minister with or to come alongside of. Um, it's like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. These qualities that Peter talked about and the qualities that Paul talked about in Galatians 5, they don't just happen. They grow out of a life of intimate involvement with Christ, an intimate relationship of knowing Him, of knowing Him. And Peter literally wrote here, make every effort to bring alongside whatever you fill in the blank, whatever those seven characteristics are. Make every effort to bring them alongside of each other. And the first one is goodness or excellence translated sometimes or virtue translated. And it is in essence what gives man, you and me, worth and that's by fulfilling our purpose. A tool that works, no, let's say it this way, a tool that works correctly is excellent because it's doing what it's supposed to do. You and I are to glorify God and we're only able to do that because He lives inside of us. Assuming that we're a believer, He lives inside of us. Authentic goodness, genuine, real goodness in a Christian life is not about perfecting some human qualities that I may have, no matter how good they may be. It's not about perfecting my human qualities. It is about producing godly qualities that make me more like Christ. Y'all see the difference in that? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about becoming more Christ-like. And so faith helps us develop goodness. Goodness helps us develop knowledge. And the word here used in this verse, a little different word for knowledge than is used in, um, in verse 2. And this kind of knowledge points, it's like a little more practical knowledge. It's a little more uh, discernment maybe. It's the kind of knowledge that we would use to navigate the waters through life. So knowledge. The next quality is self-control. And we all know people that have no self-control. We all know people that stuff comes out of their mouth before it gets processed by their brain. And Peter says here, uh, this is a quality of authentic Christianity is to show self-control. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. 
so self-control. Fourth on that list is perseverance, and perseverance is the ability to endure when times are tough. Self-control kind of deals with uh, handling maybe the pleasures of life, but, but showing control, where perseverance deals, for the most part, with the pressures and the problems of life. Perseverance doesn't just happen magically either. We have to work at that. The book of James, particularly chapter 1 of James, is a perfect image, and it gives us the right perspective of perseverance. Trials are coming, and like them or not, they're coming. Without those trials, we would never learn how to persevere. By faith, we got to let those trials work for us and not against us, because you know what? Don't you know that God is hard at work on you in the trials? Do you think that you grow better when times are wonderful? Or do you think we all grow better when times are tough? It's Evidence is just overwhelming. And God is at work in those trials. And He's at work in them and on them and on and in you. And for those that love Him, hear this, those that love Him, He promises to work that for good. Don't let the deceiver tell you that your Bible says that God works all things to the good. Period. That's not what it says. It says He works all things to the good for those that love Him. Not just, that is a promise to believers. That is not a promise to the world. And the reality is, the tough times, the, the trials, the whatever may be going on in our lives, we may not be privileged enough to see the good that God works from it. But you know what? He's a promise keeper. It may be your great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren that are believers because of some trial that we went through today. He is a promise keeper. He is not a liar. And he will work it to the good for those that love him. I hope, look, I hope I get to see it. All the junk that has gone on in my life, I hope I get to see the good he works from it. But the fact that I get to see it or don't get to see it, it doesn't make him a liar. He's a promise keeper and I trust and I believe that he is who he says he is and that he can do every single thing that he says he can do. So, um, fourth on that list is perseverance. From perseverance now to godliness. And this is a bit of a weird word that, uh, that Peter uses. Ephsevia is the Greek. And it's a weird word a little bit that's translated godliness because the word God is not in it anywhere. That's why when you see that word in the scripture, it's usually not capitalized. I don't know why I told you all that. But it is, that's, that's why. It's got a little g because the word God is actually not in the word. Um, and it's really not speaking to inward holiness. It's really speaking a little more to a manner of life a manner of life that is a little more external, a manner of life that is a little more um, doing the right thing, a little more of an attitude towards the Christ that saved you and a manner of life that matches that attitude. Paul told Timothy in chapter 4 in verse 7, uh, and Paul is a mentor for Timothy. Timothy's a very young pastor. I don't know why this means young, but he's not that big, you know. He's 18, 19 years old, and Paul is shepherding him along on how to be a shepherd. And he tells him in verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. That means it doesn't just happen automatically. We've got to be intentional about it. We've got to be intentional about making good decisions. We've got to be intentional about training ourselves to be godly. We've got to have accountability partners to help spur us on. 
The book of Hebrews talks about believers spurring each other on. And the godly person doesn't take the easy way out and avoid the pain or the trial. He does what's right because it's right. And it's within the will of God. Second to last that uh, Peter talked about is in, in these characteristics is mutual affection, brotherly kindness. Sometimes it's translated brotherly love. And so I'm going to tell you all, if we love Jesus, if you love Jesus, you've got to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot love God and, love, and, and not love people. You can't. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You cannot authentically, genuinely, honestly love God and be nasty to people and not love people. Hebrews 13.1 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. 1 John 5.1-2 says, Everything, uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. The fact that we love our brothers and sisters is, is, is an evidence that we are born again. But there's more to it than just mutual affection, more to it than just brotherly love. Peter says here there must also be agape love. You've probably heard that word, agape love. That's sacrificial love. That's the kind of love that Jesus displayed on the cross. That's the kind of love that God shows towards lost sinners. Brotherly affection is loving that person because of how they are like you. Agape love is loving that person in spite of how they are not like you. Brotherly love is loving the lovable. Agape love is loving the unlovable. Y'all get that? They're very, very different things. They're, they're very different things. Agape love is jumping in front of the train for someone. Here's the deal. These seven qualities that Peter describes here, there is absolutely no way that we can manufacture those things on our own in our own fallen nature. They can only be produced by the Holy Spirit that would live inside of me. And you're going to sit there and say, well, you know what? That's a bunch of junk because I got friends. They're not Christians and they persevere. I got friends that, and they're not Christians and they have self-control. I got friends and they're not Christians and they're good. But here's the difference. Their goodness, the unbeliever, their goodness, their self-control, their perseverance is pointing at whose strength? It's pointing at their own strength. When God produces the beautiful nature of his son in the life of a believer, it is pointing back to him. There's a difference in those two things. I want to be a mirror to God. I want to be a reflecting mirror to everything that I feel like I want to do in my life. I want it to reflect because I'm broken, sinful, and fallen. Anything that is good strictly comes from Him. So I want it to reflect back to Him. And when we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, when we are in Christ, we can grow spiritually and develop that kind of Christian character. And it's through His power and it's through His promises. And it's promises that Peter calls precious. He says they're precious. He calls the Scripture precious. It's in that that true growth can take place. In Romans 8.29, Paul said, Paul boiled it down so simply in, in 8.29. He says that God wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
it ain't that hard. Just look like the Master. I just want to look like Him. If I want to be a disciple of Christ, I want to be looking the way that He looks. And so Jesus-focused faith results in spiritual growth. The third major point is this. Spiritual growth brings practical results. So how do we know that we're growing spiritually? Physically, all of us probably grew up with the little notches in the door. You know, every year our parents would put a little notch in the doorpost as we grew an inch or two or three or a half or whatever. But, but spiritually, how do we know that? How do we know that we're growing? Peter gives us three evidences that we can look at in our lives. Verse 8 says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are these qualities? It's the seven he just talked about. The seven he referred to. If we keep them, what in, in if they're increasing, those seven qualities, if they're increasing, it will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive. Fruitfulness, fruitfulness is the first evidence that Peter's talking about. The more that we become like Christ, the more he can use us to do stuff. The more we are conformed to his image, the more he can use us to do things. And a believer who is stagnant and is not growing is unfruitful. Some of the most effective Christians that I have ever met in my life are just regular folks. They're just people with not with dramatic talents and gifts and skills and abilities, not even exciting personalities, maybe boring. They're they're but they're becoming more and more like Jesus. Their fruitfulness is because of their faithfulness. There's a relationship between our fruitfulness and our faithfulness. So these people are effective because they're growing in their Christian experience. The disciples, Jesus guys, they were fruitful. He sent them out. They changed the dang world. They changed the world. These 12 guys, they go out, they change the world. And they were fruitful because on a daily basis, they were becoming more and more and more like the guy that they were hanging out with. Hang out with Jesus, you'll become more like him. That's what happened to them. They became more and more like their master. They became more and more like their teacher. So verse 9 says, <clears throat> but whoever does not have them does not have what? Those seven characteristics we just talked about. Whoever doesn't have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. So the second evidence that we're growing is vision. We have vision. 2 Corinthians says that, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, says that unsaved people are in the dark because Satan has blinded their minds. We've got to be reborn born again for the blinders to come off and for our eyes to be opened so that we can see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 3 says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And after they're opened, <clears throat> after our eyes are opened, we've got to constantly grow the scope of our vision so we can see everything that God has got for us. Now, there are lots of Christians a lot of Christians that are in their own little holy huddle. They're, they only see their church. They only see their denomination. They only see some little circle that is a special club that everybody's not part of that clique. But what they fail to see 
is they fail to see the greatness of God's family all over the planet. They may see some needs at home, but they have no vision for the lost world. We have got to have a heart for the lost. The mission is to help people find their way back to God. Yeah, that's the mission of this church, stated mission of our church. That's Jesus' mission. Is that not what God wants to do? Is that not what Christ wants to do every single day is to help people come to know him? There's a guy, his name was Phillips Brooks. You don't know who Phillips Brooks is, probably. He was a preacher and he wrote, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And somebody asked him one day, what would he do to revive a dead church? And here's what he said. He said, I'd preach a missionary sermon and I'd pass the bucket and take up a collection to fund that. And he said that because people grow when they're mission-minded, when you're serving, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're volunteering. That is how you grow. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let's get real for a second. There are some churches today that are like the church at Laodicea that Jesus talks about in Revelation chapter 3. They're proud, and they're proud that they are rich. And Revelation 3.17 says they have acquired great wealth. That's what Revelation 3.17 says. They've acquired great wealth, and they don't need a thing. That's what they think. They don't need a thing. We got everything we want. We got a big building. We got this and that, and we got the other thing. We have acquired great wealth. But then Jesus himself lays the hammer down, and he calls them, Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They think they got every... You know why? You know how that happens? We get deceived by the deceiver. And they're deceived. And Peter tells us there's big consequences when we have vision problems. And so if we don't display these qualities, we become blind and, and we have forgotten what God has done for us. And what is that? There's a line in that, in that oh, little town of Bethlehem that Brooks wrote, and here's what it says. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. That's what he did for us. He cast out our sin and he entered in. Lord, please open up our eyes and don't ever let any of us forget that. Life's too short and the needs of the world are too great for us to walk around with our eyes closed. The last evidence that we're growing is security. This is in verses 10 and 11, and then we're going to wrap this up. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we walk around with our eyes closed, we're going to trip and fall. But a believer that is growing walks with confidence because he knows he's secure in Christ. The person who claims to be a child of God, but whose character and conduct gives no evidence of spiritual growth, is deceived. If you walk around thinking that you are a child of God and there is zero evidence, you are dead. Dead things don't grow, and alive things grow 100% of the time. There is always fruit. It may be a little fruit. But a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. But I'll say this. A believer 
who's sure of his calling and election is not always going to be on a mountaintop, but he's always going to be climbing, moving up. And he may be moving one inch at a time, but he's always moving up. And a growing Christian can look forward to what Peter says in this verse, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. It is the same welcome that the father in the prodigal son in Luke 15, it's the same welcome that the father gives that son. What is, what is Luke 15, 20 said? It says the father saw the son from a long way off and he ran to him to welcome him. And he ran to him to welcome him home. It's the same phrase that the Greeks used to welcome home a, uh, an Olympic winner. Just think of the blessing that a growing Christian can look forward to. Fruitfulness, vision, security in Christ, and a welcome home like an Olympic gold medalist. So that the Christian life begins with faith, authentic faith that is pointed towards Christ as the object. And that faith leads to spiritual growth. Real, authentic Christian faith leads always to spiritual growth. And the people that have that kind of faith, that kind of Christian experience, are way, way, way less likely to fall prey to false teaching. But that's for next week in chapter 2. Between now and next week, here's what I want you all to do. The last 10 verses of chapter 1, I reference it in this table talk in the handout. I want you all to do that. You all read those last... <clears throat> those last 10 verses in in second peter 1 and you'll see one of the tools i guess that peter is talking about remember grandma's verse i know whom i have believed this deep this is the deep intimate knowledge that peter's talking about in this letter and i want to ask you do you know, and i know that there's somebody in here that does not know him that way today I know in my spirit there's no doubt in my mind. And so I'm not asking, do you know who he is? Everybody knows who he is. I'm saying, do you know him? Is he, are you sharing his nature? Is he living inside of you today? And if you don't, let today be the day that y'all meet and become friends. And so I want to ask you, if you'll close your eyes, if you'll bow your heads, and I do this every Sunday. If you don't know him, this is it. It's two things. You repent. Today's the day. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm putting it behind me. I'm walking away from this and that and the other thing. Number one, I'm repenting. Number two is that I believe, Lord. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you did everything you said uh, that you can do. Lord, I believe that you died on that cross, that your blood was shed for me and I believe that you were resurrected three days later y'all got to understand that if the resurrection really happened if a in history Jesus was dead and then he was alive that's a game changer and if you and it did and that changes everything and so if, if that if you have accepted that today and if you believe that today then you are saved and you went from lost and you went, uh, you, you became found. And I'm going to, y'all can open up your eyes, raise your, raise your, uh, raise your heads. If that happened today, that's the biggest day of your life. That's a bigger day than the day you got married. And I'm going to say for me, it was a bigger day than the day I got married. And I love my wife 
so much, but the day I got saved was a bigger day. The day my first son was born, oh my God, humongous day. Wasn't as big as the day that God saved me from the pit of hell. I can tell you that. So if that happened to you today, huge, ginormous, unbelievable day. And it's not the end. Peter said it's not the end, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a walk of growth and service with the Lord until He calls you home. So let me pray real quick, and then we'll, we're going to call our host teams up. Lord, we love you today. Lord, I thank you so much for, uh, for salvation. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you loved me personally when I was the most unlovable creature on the planet. That is agape love. I spit in your face and you love me anyway. Lord, there's just nothing like that. And Lord, I pray that you have pricked hearts in this room today that that same thing happened. And so Lord, I lift our church body up to you in Jesus' name.